a lot of things have to go just right for a movie to be made. Once the movie is complete and released to theaters, it's up to the audience and critics to determine if the movie is good, not so good, or unforgettable. Sometimes filmmakers spend years developing films only to leave them behind. There are many compelling stories about these filmmakers and the projects that were intended to become feature films but were instead forgotten. This is one of those stories. My name's Nate and I'm your host, and this is Movies Never Made. Hollywood has a long history of adapting novels into films, and usually with great success. Recently, we've seen highly profitable productions adapted from novels such as The Hunger Games, Harry Potter, Insurgent, and The Hobbit. You might be surprised to learn that many critically acclaimed films of the past have actually been adapted from novels as well, such as Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, and Dallas Buyers Club, just to name a few. So why are novels such hot properties in Hollywood? Well, in the film industry, novels are considered pre-sold properties, meaning they already have an established public interest, therefore a far greater chance of attracting a movie audience. Think about Harry Potter as an example. Before the movie came out, there was an enormous following of fans that were already invested in the novels and that were also guaranteed to show up at the theater once the movie arrived. This has been proven to be true as the combined eight films of the Harry Potter series have earned an estimated $7.7 billion worldwide. So yeah, novels are usually good opportunities for movie studios to make money, which brings us to the focus of today's episode, a novel that blends fiction with film history to create an intricate plot surrounding a fictional director by the name of Max Castle. This is Flickr by Theodore Rossack. Flickr follows the story of Johnny Gates, a young man living in Modesto, California in the early 1960s as he becomes exposed to the world of film. Johnny and his friends spend their days sneaking into theaters to watch foreign films in hopes of catching some of the more erotic scenes that are absent in the American film landscape. During these screenings, Johnny begins to appreciate and study the films and soon finds himself seeking out more about the art of film. Johnny and his friends frequent a local movie theater called The Classic, known for its selection of film screenings accompanied by hand-typed critical review essays and for being a near-dilapidated hole in the wall. While attending an after-movie coffee session at a nearby cafe with his friends, Johnny meets Clarissa Swan, co-owner of The Classic. Johnny instantly falls in love with Clarissa, or Claire as she is also known, as they engage in conversation about film. Claire is a much different film scholar than Johnny, where he offers an enthusiasm for the medium, Claire approaches with far more critical cynicism and a significant absence of awe that she once held for the movies. Claire has an impressive and near-endless knowledge of film. While talking movies, someone mentions Max Castle, a director that is curiously unknown among this small group of film scholars, including Claire. Little is known about Castle, except for these brief details. Max Castle was mostly known for directing films containing such promising titles as Zombie Doctor, Kiss of the Vampire, and House of Blood. In 1941, Castle was to start production on a new film, but he died suddenly. While traveling to Zurich during World War II, his ship was torpedoed by a Nazi U-boat. He was 42 years old. Castle is dismissed among the group as a B-movie artist, and his films are disregarded as trash. Johnny and Claire obtain a previously lost Castle film 
and screen it for themselves. Afterwards, they have a newly instilled feeling of horror within themselves which they cannot explain. Though the film itself proved to be unimpressive, Johnny is convinced that there is more to Castle's films than their incoherent storylines and pathetic set work. Claire agrees with Johnny and encourages him to research the life and works of Max Castle, but also warns him that their feelings may be amplified by Johnny's study, as she fears that Castle's films may be more dangerous than they let on. Slowly, Johnny pieces together his findings and they lead him to a religious group known as the Orphans of the Storm, a group that Castle once belonged to. There he works to learn as much as he can about this highly secretive order, though its leaders do a great job of evading Johnny's more pressing questions. Through his persistence and growing investigative skills, Johnny uncovers something far more sinister than he could have ever imagined. The novel was published in 1991, and in 2003, the film adaptation was announced as an upcoming project for director Darren Aronofsky. The Sundance Film Festival held each year in Park City, Utah, has always served as a launchpad for independent filmmakers to showcase their skills. There have been many countless monumental films screened at Sundance, including Blood Simple, the debut film of Joel and Ethan Cohen, who would go on to create some of the most popular films of all time, including Raising Arizona, The Big Lebowski, Fargo, and No Country for Old Men. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, one of my personal favorites, directed by Steven Soderbergh, which is a film that many critics agree helped launch the American independent film movement and made everyone else take notice. And Clerks, directed by Kevin Smith, legendary for having been produced on a microscopic budget comprised of borrowed money and maxed out credit cards. Clerks provided a look at the day in the life of two 20-something slackers who weren't supposed to be at work anyway, and that's just to name a few. At the Sundance Film Festival in 1998, Darren Aronofsky made his debut with a film he directed titled Pi. Pi tells the story of Max, a mathematician who struggles to make sense of the numbers in his head while being pursued by a mysterious consultant group who want to use his intellect to exploit the stock market. Max also catches the eye of an unlikely ally in a man named Lenny who claims he can help. Max eventually arrives at a startling revelation about his mind that could destroy him. The film was praised by audiences, and Aronofsky won the award for Best Director at the Sundance Film Festival that year. Pi went on to further success, winning Best First Screenplay at the Independent Spirit Awards and the Open Palm at the Gotham Awards, which is presented for Outstanding Directorial Debut. With his superb debut now fresh in the minds of critics and filmgoers alike, Aronofsky was ready to unleash a new film to the world. In 1999, he began working on his next feature film, which would be far more daring and further cement his position among the ranks of talented filmmakers. Production on this film, now titled Requiem for a Dream, was well underway, and Aronofsky was approached by Warner Brothers about potentially committing to a new project after Requiem was complete. That proposed project was Batman. Warner Brothers' most recent attempt, Batman and Robin, was met with a rather dismal response from audiences, and they were eager to relaunch the franchise in a big way. Aronofsky was asked to pitch a story that could help revive interest in the Cape Crusader, and with the help of Frank Miller, author of many acclaimed Batman comic titles, he delivered a pitch that was a radical departure from what anyone had ever seen from The Dark Knight. Together, Aronofsky and Miller wrote a script for an origin story, 
primarily based on the graphic novel Batman Year One, which was written by Miller himself. The script deviated from the source material significantly, though, and changed the well-known mythos of Batman, including a young Bruce Wayne living in an auto repair garage with Big Al and his son Little Al, Batman using a Lincoln Town Car with a supercharged school bus engine as the Batmobile, and an opening scene featuring a young Jim Gordon contemplating suicide. This project was put aside for the time being, while Aronofsky continued work on Requiem for a Dream, and so Warner Brothers could hear pitches from other filmmakers who were interested in rebooting the Batman franchise. One filmmaker was Wolfgang Peterson, who pitched the concept of a Batman vs. Superman film. I'd love to tell you all about this Batman project, but I'll save that for another episode. With Requiem for a Dream soon to be released in theaters, Aronofsky's professional life was looking promising. His personal life quickly became his main focus when he was told that both his parents were diagnosed with cancer. It was a long fight and soon his parents eventually overcame their struggle, but Aronofsky didn't forget the incredible emotional blow he suffered during that period. He used that as motivation to write a new story. A story about love, about death, and about time. He enlisted the help of his former undergraduate school roommate, Ari Handel, who came with a PhD in neuroscience from New York University. The story was untitled, but eventually Aronofsky and Handel started referring to it as The Last Man. Requiem for a Dream was released in October 2000. Based on the novel of the same name by Hubert Selby Jr., it starred Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, Marlon Wayans, and Ellen Burstyn. The film received high marks from critics, especially for Ellen Burstyn, who earned an Academy Award nomination for her role, as well as nominations from the Screen Actors Guild, the Golden Globes, and the Independent Spirit Awards. In 2001, Darren Aronofsky began negotiations with Warner Brothers to finally start production on his film, The Last Man, now titled The Fountain, signing Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett to star as the leads. Unfortunately, the film would see its fair share of misfortune even before getting in front of cameras. The production suffered financial trouble with Warner Brothers concerned about the climbing budget, so the future for The Fountain was already looking uncertain. In early 2002, a mere seven weeks before filming was to begin, Brad Pitt announced he was leaving the project. While his reason for leaving was never really explained, it's rumored that Pitt had requested certain script revisions that were not met, prompting his departure. So with Pitt gone, Aronofsky and Warner Brothers scrambled to find a new lead for their picture. The Fountain was without a lead actor, and time was moving at a rapid pace. So Warner Brothers announced in June 2002 that Aronofsky's proposed Batman film was canceled in favor of another project. The Batman vs. Superman film that Wolfgang Peterson had pitched the same time that Aronofsky and Miller pitched year one. Peterson's Batman-Superman Battle Royale film was still in the script stage and wasn't planned to begin production until 2003. Warner Brothers eventually decided to ditch that Batman film as well, instead going with a pitch from Christopher Nolan and screenwriter David S. Goyer, an origin story that would eventually become Batman Begins. The final hit for The Fountain came in September 2002, when Warner Brothers president Jeff Robinov announced that Brad Pitt would be joining the cast of Wolfgang Peterson's Greek epic adaptation film, Troy. Along with the announcement, Robinov officially declared production on The Fountain to be suspended indefinitely. 
Though facing these defeats, Darren Aronofsky secured a victory, and in January 2003, he signed a multi-film development deal with Regency Pictures, based out of 20th Century Fox, announcing Flickr as his first production. The studio hired Jim Oles, screenwriter of David Fincher's Fight Club, to adapt Flickr for the screen. Unfortunately, production stalled shortly into the development phase. Time passed, and Flickr was no closer to becoming a reality. So Aronofsky shifted his focus to one of his previously postponed projects. In February 2004, Warner Brothers officially announced production to resume on The Fountain, this time starring Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. The Fountain was finally released in 2006. Aronofsky's career continued with great success, going on to direct The Wrestler, Black Swan, and Noah, with Black Swan earning Academy Award nominations for Best Director and Best Picture. As of this recording, Flickr remains unproduced, with no recent developments. Flickr seemed like a fitting story to exhibit the director's skills and would have been a great companion to his filmography. Obsession is a major theme in Aronofsky's films, most notably Black Swan. In that film, a young dancer, played by Natalie Portman, will stop at nothing to perfect her performance in an upcoming production of Swan Lake. The dancer's rigorous preparations and rehearsals become dangerous as she begins to suffer from hallucinations, aggression, and eventually violence, all in the pursuit of perfection. Though Johnny's character is far less overwhelmed and consumed than Portman's character, Johnny devotes his entire life to studying Max Castle and discovering the hidden messages within his films. Throughout the novel, Johnny's occupations are briefly mentioned, and his social life isn't mentioned at all. His only goal in the novel is to uncover the mystery of Castle's films, which causes him to become reckless and socialize with questionable company. This behavior nearly leads to his own destruction, which is another constant theme in Aronofsky's films. In Pi, the main character, Max, reaches the end of his rope trying to decipher the numbers in his head and is eventually driven to drastic actions. The film's final moments masterfully convey a sense of claustrophobia and desperation in only a few shots, letting the audience feel what Max is feeling. In one of the most powerful moments of Flickr, Johnny is nearing the end of his journey and, due to his recent discoveries, is overcome with an intense feeling of dread. This moment translated to film would prove to be an excellent opportunity for a director like Aronofsky to amplify the intense feeling of isolation and fear that overwhelms Johnny and relay that to an audience. Though Aronofsky seemed a promising choice to direct Flickr, adapting the novel to film proved to have its challenges. First, and perhaps the most obvious challenge, is the novel's near-epic timeline spanning almost three decades. Within that time, Johnny travels to many different locations around the world, including New York, California, Paris, Germany, and more. This works in the novel's 500-plus page length, but in the constraints of a two-hour or even two-and-a-half-hour film, it could prove difficult. There are many characters in the novel, and each one serves an important purpose including a teenage filmmaker who admires Max Castle and works to emulate his mysterious techniques in his own films. He is by no means a minor character, and his art could fill its own film. Jim Oles, writer of the Flickr screenplay, was well aware of this and omitted the character entirely from his script. Oles went even further and merged some characters together, which is typical when adapting a novel for film, but there's only so many characters you can combine before entire blocks of the novel go missing. Mike White, a writer and film critic, published a review of Ohl's script in 2007. In his review of the script, White notes some of the more baffling changes from the novel, including the character of Claire being described as stunningly gorgeous, 
where the novel describes her as somewhat bohemian, perpetually dressed in a long black skirt with a black cardigan, mousy hair tied back in a ponytail, and glasses. Castle has been changed to a scheming prankster rather than the highly skilled man of the novel, and his sprawling filmography is reduced to only three films. I'm a firm believer that film is an exceptionally unique medium, and you'll never get the same experience from a film that you'll get from the novel, a comic book, or a television show, even if they're based on the same properties and telling the same stories. Stories must adapt to the structure and presentation of a motion picture, so changes must be made. But the change to these characters in the script seem arbitrary, and I can't seem to find a way that they would have served the story. Needless to say, White's critique of the script was not very favorable. But these challenges aren't constrained only to the script. Studios are becoming more interested in creating franchises out of their properties, especially book adaptations. Most of the successful novel-to-film properties span several films, providing more opportunities for revenue. Sometimes this doesn't work out, even for book series with proven directors. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher, was meant to launch a new franchise for Sony Pictures based on the book series. However, as of this recording, there are no immediate plans to continue the series on film. Now, this could be attributed to a number of reasons. The unique and rather dark story was difficult to market during its Christmas time release. The inevitable comparisons audiences would draw to its source novel and the Swedish film adaptation, and the lack of excitement from critics upon its release. Flickr is only one novel, therefore would not offer the promise of a film franchise unless the studio worked to create one by means of branching out from the original story. As for the audience accessibility, the film would certainly have to be rated R in order to include some of the more controversial material from the novel, or face the tough decision of omitting these moments in order to obtain a softer PG-13 rating. That tactic, however, doesn't usually go over well with fans. When Zack Snyder was filming his adaptation of Watchmen, a battle raged within the studio to determine if the film would be rated R or PG-13. Thankfully, the film was produced with an R rating in mind and was able to keep it. Fans were excited, as was Snyder, but selling Watchmen as an R-rated comic book film wasn't easy, earning an estimated $55 million in its opening weekend, below studio expectations. A lot of things have to go just right for a movie to be made. This is especially true when adapting a novel, as the filmmakers typically attempt to be as faithful to the source material as possible. If you're paying for the story, then you may as well use it. Maybe a novel featuring fictional film history, fanatic religious groups, an eager film student, and the end of the world proved to be too difficult to translate to film. Or maybe the people involved in the production lost the interest they once had for the project and found more passion in telling new stories. We may never know why this movie wasn't made. At the end of the day, we can make assumptions based on what we know, but that's all we'll have, are those assumptions. Or maybe there is a definitive answer to our mystery. Maybe the clues are there, hidden among the story of the filmmakers and the journey of the production, and, like our novel's protagonist, we just have to look beyond the surface. This has been Movies Never Made. Be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash moviesnevermade. Follow us on Twitter at moviesnevermade. And take a minute to write a review of our podcast on iTunes. Thank you for listening.